Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done well over 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's PayPal buttons on the website, and there's also a page which explains alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Angelo DeLulo. Angelo is an anesthesiologist living in the Denver area, but that's not why we're going to be talking to him. And he wrote out a bio here. I'll just read one paragraph of it. It, it, became, it became exquisitely clear that suffering is unnecessary among humans and that any human being who has a genuine yearning to wake up to their true nature has the capacity to wake up to this boundless, non-separation, living truth. This led to the writing of the book, Awake, It's Your Turn. The book is a combination of practical advice to help anyone who is on this pathless path, practice pointers and inquiry tips, and direct pointing, transmission through language. All right, Angela, so it usually helps to start these conversations with a little bit of personal background, just so that people have a sense of who is this guy who's telling me this stuff? How does he qualify to say what he's saying? You mentioned in the part of your bio that I didn't read that you underwent years of intense internal suffering and an intuition that something about the way we interact with our thoughts causes a lot of unnecessary suffering. So maybe we should start with that and uh, how you eventually came to a way out of it. Sure. I grew up American family, sort of in the West, in Colorado. I would say that my degree of suffering, my, my degree of internal angst, stress, the feeling of just being out of sorts with life was very much out of proportion with the sort of family dynamics that I grew up in and so forth. I mean, of course, there were some dysfunction and so forth, but this was just fully beyond that. And it started really when I was a kid. I, I remember very distinctly being in presence as a child most of the time and noticing thoughts. Then it was more than noticing thoughts. It felt like the thoughts were sort of crowding in and starting to define me. And, and then I noticed I could push on the thoughts or almost try to push them away and it would push back and it felt more and more enclosed. And for me, it just started feeling very suffocating. By the time I was probably in my early teens, I felt that there was just something pervasively wrong. I didn't know what it was, but my assumption was, or my conclusion was that it was wrong with me. And there was a sort of circular thought loop going, what is wrong with me? What is wrong? What is wrong? And I was looking for the answer in thoughts, very strangely. And I was taking myself to be thoughts. I was actually taking myself to be some conceptual idea of, of me and my past and my future and the way thoughts construct reality. And no one ever pulled me aside and, and told me there was any other way to, to approach my internal world. So I just struggled with it more and more. And the more I struggled with it and against it, the more the suffering became intense, more acute. Um, by the time I was about 18 or 19, I learned to meditate. I learned from a gentleman who learned transcendental meditation in the 1960s from Ramana Maharishi. Uh, Maharishi Yogi. Mahesh Yogi. He I taught me know that person. What's his name? Do you mind telling He's me? passed. His name is Rack, but uh, he's from Boulder, Colorado. His name is Robert Craigle, but he went by the name Rack, R-A-K, which was his initial. So 
yeah, old hippie guy. So I did learn TM from him and I learned uh, to meditate and I really took to it. I mean, it was like water in the desert for me. And I meditated every day, twice a day, didn't have any instruction beyond that. Didn't have any spiritual knowledge. Hadn't read any books about anything to do with inquiry or really awakening. I'd had a peripheral interest in Buddhism, Eastern thought, Eastern traditions and so forth, but I didn't really know why. I just had an inclination in that direction. So for about four or five years, I meditated religiously and it helped, but it really just helped in the moments I was meditating. It was a a relief, a respite from all the, the suffering that was going on all day long. I suspected there was something in it that could shift things in a big way, but I, it was a vague assumption. I didn't really know. And I, again, I'd heard of enlightenment. I'd heard of awakening and so forth in the Buddhist context, but I, either the way it was presented to me or just the way I interpreted it, it sounded like something that could happen in another lifetime. Or if you're a monk for 60 years or something, it never hit that like this could actually happen to me. This could happen now. (laughs) And it's about me and my own suffering. So for whatever reason, that never quite landed until it did. I was 24 years old, had gone through like a, a romantic breakup. And again, the suffering was just acute. It had been that way for years. And for whatever reason, I picked up this book that I'd had for quite a while. And I, I'm pretty sure I'd never read any of it. And I just knew I picked it up. I went to the, it's the Three Pillars of Zen by Kaplan Roshi, Philip Kaplan Roshi. There's a chapter in there that's really amazing. It's uh, 13 or 11 stories of, I think it's called Enlightenment Accounts by Westerners and Japanese people from the 1960s. So these are accounts of people going through Kensho or Awakening. They write it in their own words, in their own commentary, how it played out for them. And I read each one of them and I I said, oh, this, I don't know how this is going to happen for me, but this is going to happen for me. If it kills me, if I have to die trying, this is exactly what I need. Because I knew that every way I had tried to solve this problem of myself, every way I had tried to solve being a human, it just didn't work. And I felt in a very deep way, I could tell it just just wasn't going to work to continue to try the same ways I had learned about how to make yourself happy, to make yourself, bring yourself peace and so forth. I just knew I had to go completely beyond that somehow. And that was the first time I actually tasted, really tasted the possibility of how I could actually do that. And I sat down with that book and I figured it out. I figured out how to do that. I started just doing self-inquiry in a certain way and ultimately caused a massive, massive shift in the way I perceive everything. And it kind of came in two phases. It was more than that, actually. But generally speaking, there was one major shift at one night while I was meditating and doing this kind of practice where literally everything was being, just pure conscious being. There was It wasn't experiential. It was uh, identity just dissolved into it. There was no personal identity, really. There was a universal consciousness identity an identity of being, pure being. And I remember having the thought very distinctly, I thought, oh, this is what spiritual people are looking for. And I kind of thought, this is kind of what everyone's looking for. And I thought it was really weird that I knew that because I didn't really know spiritual people. I I, I didn't have that context, but somehow it was just very obvious. It was so more real than real. It was so self-obvious and self-validating and thoroughly enjoyable, but it, it also wasn't a big deal, like an explosion of ecstasy. It was more like a a neutrality that just encompassed everything. And so um, I remember thinking, I'll just do this for the rest of my life. That's fine. I'll go to work. I'll do what I need to do. But when I have spare time, I'm just going to sit in this because this is the only time I've ever truly known peace. And this was a piece beyond the story of me. This was a piece that went beyond this lifetime that I didn't know was possible at all. 
so I just stayed with that and I thought, oh, this is it. The next day, something even more unexpected happened that I couldn't even begin to describe really. And I've tried many times and it's not really describable, but all I can say is the the whole paradigm of identity and everything that has to do with identity just completely disappeared and it never came back. So that's a very hard thing to talk about. I'm sure you bumped into this many times. It's It's literally impossible to talk about. You can talk about aspects of it. You can talk about what's not there in, for the contrast. But the interesting thought that came through my mind at that point was in comparison to what happened last night, I don't think people actually want this. It's sort of not wantable. Like Adi Shanti has that way of saying it's not wantable and it's right on the money. It, there's just nothing there, it, but it's also not empty. It's not literal nothingness. It's not empty space. It's just, there's no identity at all. And so nothing you could ever want out of that could ever come of it. Obviously, when I didn't expect this, I had no idea what it was. It has no substance or form. There was no way to even give myself a context for it. And in a way, there still isn't. So I was just sort of like, okay. It was sort of like, this is home, but it's even beyond form. So even if there is no form at all, this body could disappear. This universe could disappear. This will never change. It's just not even in that realm of change change or not change or... And it's home beyond home. Nothing could ever be out of place. Things are just so perfectly okay, whether they're in form and dysfunctioning or coming out of form or it didn't matter. So from there, I really had nothing to say. It was, it was kind of over for the individual. It was just done. There's nothing to say about that anymore. So then it's just a matter of, well, now let's just go forward and live the conventional life and see what happens, which is very strange. It, it just kind of came to an end. And there were some refinements of it, but they're very hard to talk about that, that continued to happen over time. The one thing that stuck around for me a lot actually was reactivity, which is interesting. Equanimity took a lot longer for me, but I'm also sort of grateful for that because I had to really go back through the conditioning in exquisite detail. And I never had a plan or a thought that I would ever talk about this to anyone or publicly. It, it literally never crossed my mind for many years, 15 years, probably. But in retrospect, it worked out perfectly. I was able to explain it in a way to myself and to others that, that to me, at least to me, it was satisfying that I could actually show someone, if you really, really want to look at this, if you really want to dig in in this way, it's possible for you. And that's it. If someone hears this and says, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if you listen to this and you say, I know what you mean, and I know what suffering is, even if you didn't know fully before, I can recognize it in myself. The message is there is a way out of that. And that's that's ultimately where the book came from. Six or seven years ago, very randomly and sort of by surprise and organically, I started having these conversations with people and I noticed they would start having shifts because they would tell me, they would literally tell me, oh, that thing you said, can you write that down? Or can you talk more about that? And I I really thought like, I almost felt like I'd slipped up, like, oh, I accidentally said something I shouldn't have said. Because there's something about this that's so strange and paradoxical that there's no sense that anyone needs to wake up. There's no sense that anything has gone wrong anywhere. And yet somehow it does come forth in spontaneous conversation at times. Well, that just started happening more and more. And I started writing it down. I started emailing to a group of people who were asking these sorts of questions And then from there, I had written so much. It really surprised me how much I had written, how much volume I had written, but it was really disjointed. It wasn't coherent as far as like being able to put in a book or something. So I sort of put that on the shelf for a few years 
I thought I probably won't write a book with this, but I have a lot of this stuff I had written and I would occasionally send it to people if a certain topic seemed to come up in their experience. And then literally I was sitting on a beach in Jamaica and the chapters of the book downloaded in my brain. It was really, really strange. All of a sudden I knew the structure of the the book and I was like, whoa, that's weird. So I started typing it out on my iPhone and I was trying to, I couldn't even type it as fast as it was coming, but I just knew for some reason how the structure had to go. And I typed out the structure of the chapters. And then it took about two and a half years after that to fill it all in, organize it. And I revised it many, many times because I really wanted the wording to be simple, direct, accessible, not jargon laden, but effective and true and honest. So it's just a lot of refinements with the writing. And I published the book about a year ago. That's an interesting introduction. I'll just uh, tell you a few thoughts that came to mind as you were saying it all. One is just for the record, just so you know, I, I was a TM teacher myself. I, I became one in Estes Park right up the road from you in 1970. What you were saying about suffering, as you were saying that, I was thinking, in a way, suffering is kind of relative because externally people might have looked at your life and thought, well, this guy is pretty fortunate. I mean, he's growing up in a nice place. He's obviously a good student. He's going to medical school and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, what's he got to complain about? And you might have actually externally appeared to be a happy guy. I don't know. But um, I know what you mean about what you're going through internally. And it was interesting what you said about experiences of presence when you were much younger. I often encounter that with people I've interviewed where there was something really profound happening when they were little kids. And then later on, they lost it. That's the general trend. And there was this angst, which their friends might not have had because they had tasted something that they knew they had to have and they didn't know how to get it back. And what you said about nobody necessarily has to have this or wake up to this or anything, true, but there's a couple of rebuttals to that, perhaps. One is that everybody has to have this and eventually, ultimately will. And another is that if they are suffering, then sure, that indeed, they have to have it because who would want people to continue suffering? Obviously, everything happens in good time when it's meant to happen. I'm interested in um, having you go deeper into this method of self-inquiry that you deduced from the Zen book and how that contrasted with your TM practice. How was it different? And did you continue to do some form of TM practice or did you just shift into doing this self-inquiry as your meditation practice, if you want to call it that? I wanted to just address the one comment you made about the suffering thing. And, and you make a very good, important comment is, Perhaps at some point, if we think of things in terms of time, everyone will wake up to this. But I actually see it in a very direct way that they already are this. There's no one who's not Buddha nature, truly. But that doesn't do them any good if they're not experiencing it. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) But the reason I make that disclaimer is very specific, too. People can listen to this and they actually know they're not ready. Or they'll say sometimes, I'm just not ready. I know that, but I'm not ready. I just don't want to add a layer of judgment to this. And some some people can do that. They can bring that out with a teaching, like as if you're not awake. I don't see the world that way. There, there are people who are waking up, but I don't see anyone that's asleep. That's just how I see reality. So the reason I say that, that sort of disclaimer is just to not add judgment to this and to very much clarify that someone can hear this and they may not be ready for this shift, but in five years they might be. And this can just plant a seed sometimes. So I, that's really why I say that. That's good. There are teachers who sometimes say, well, you know, you're already enlightened. Therefore, just realize that you don't have to do anything. Don't worry about practices. Forget it, all that stuff. Just 
realize you're already enlightened. And the vast majority of people, that's not going to work. And then they're going right. to feel like there's something wrong with them because yeah. they're not getting it. Absolutely. No, you're right on the money with that. And I occasionally get into this conversation with people about the the sort of neo-advaita approach of like, you know, there's no one, there's no one to, to wake up. There's no one to do self-inquiry. There's no one to, you know, yada, yada. But, you know, Dogen has a wonderful quote where he describes this. He says, the way is perfect and unsullied. Buddha nature is all pervasive. Who could imagine a way to to wipe that clean? And yet the Buddha took six years under a Bodhi tree and, and Bodhidharma sat facing a wall for eight years. And he says directly, so you think you're going to do better than them by not doing anything? So, of course, um, in the relative, some practices and inquiry and, and heart-based approach to your true nature actually matters. And then there was a Zen guy who said to his students, you're all perfect just the way you are, but you could all use improvement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very paradoxical, but really what it comes down to for me is authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, if you tell me, oh, there's no one to wake up and I say, that's great. If that's your real experience, if you actually experience no suffering at all and boundlessness and no sense of self anywhere, fine. But if you've just learned that, then maybe do some work or look into yourself and see, do I really suffer? That's the kind of thing, like if you don't start with authenticity, it's easy to get up in your head about this stuff and miss the point in various ways. Yeah, um, there's a, I guess it's a Tibetan Buddhist quote that I often have quoted, which is, um, don't mistake understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. Yep. And uh, you mentioned Neo Advaita. A lot of times people, you know, read a bunch of books and listen to a bunch of talks and, and they end up mistaking understanding for realization. Absolutely. And that's not very helpful. So as far as the self-inquiry you asked about or what the process I figured out and how that relates to TM or my practice afterwards, it was a very, very simple thing I, I, I figured out. But here's how I figured it out is as I was sitting and meditating, I suddenly became fascinated by what a thought even was. I kind of almost took the assumption at face value that, okay, what if all of this really is thought? All Every way I've perceived my life, my problems, my past, my future, what if really all of that is a thought? Because the only way I can experience it right now is as a thought. As I'm sitting here with my eyes closed, there's nothing actually going on in the way my mind makes it appear that there is in the past and future. So I just became interested in, well, what is actually a thought? And so I really oriented my attention to thought for maybe the first time in my life to where I was really trying to, to get at what it is in experience as if the movie's on the screen and you see the forms and the people, but you get a little closer and it starts looking hazy and you get even closer until you see the pixelations or whatever. It was like that. I was literally waiting for the next thought, orienting and watching it arise and then noticing, oh, that's a thought. And then I I would kind of say to myself, well, what's next then? And I would wait for the next movement of mind, whether it's a thought, an image, a visual image of myself, a body part, even a label of experience like, oh, I'm hearing something. The noticing of that as a thought, whoa. And then the mind just got quiet, quieter and quieter. And But it wasn't a, an experience of dissociation. I want to make that clear because a lot of us can dissociate too. And it wasn't a spacious, it was much more intimate. So as I recognized each thought as a thought, it was as if the substance of the thought got closer to me until there was only the substance of the thought, what it's actually made of, the thinking stuff. We call it consciousness, but I wasn't calling it anything. And then I was made out of that. Then it was like the gap between what I perceived as myself as the thinker and the thought closed completely. And then there was only that pure sense of, you could say the pure sense of I, but I wasn't labeling it at all. It was just self-obvious. So pure thinkingness 
pure consciousness, pure light of thinking without any object whatsoever. And I had heard this, like when you do transcendental meditation training, they talk about this in a sense, they, they get at like pure consciousness and getting to the root of thought. But that was always conceptual to me. When this happened, I knew exactly what that meant. And I knew what, it, what a lot of things meant that I had heard, but stored in, in a informational way. And then it was just, oh, that is what I am. It is just that pure consciousness. So there's no exact way to say what happens, but I could say that the, the sense of being a thinker and the sense of being a thought is overlooked all the time. It's almost like a standing wave in consciousness as we're thinking, well, here's my past and here's my problem. Here's the solution. I'm going to, you know, this and that. And we're actually engaging in reality right in front of our face at the same time, but we're reflecting back into mind so frequently that we really don't notice we're taking our identity from that thought structure of the past, quote unquote, present and the future and doership and agency and problems and solutions. So it's a sort of a standing wave of the unseen thinker back here, apart from the thought structures that we're taking to be our life and reality. And I'd never looked at it that way, or I'd never looked at it in the right way to where that gap could close to where the sense of being a thinker or the sense of being an I to whom all these thoughts refer and the thoughts themselves were all literally made out of the same substance. And the moment that closed, it just got completely quiet. It was, again, self-validating that this is it. At least in this phase of things, this is it. There's nothing more to do. All of the doing I had thought I've been doing was actually holding onto that standing wave, pushing the thoughts away just enough to interact with them, to push and pull on them, to keep reinforcing the sense of a thinker or a subject in consciousness. So... I point to how to get at this in different ways because it just depends on the person. You know, try some things out. There's no exact right way to to close that gap. But Ramana Maharishi says it in a very clear way. He just says, just notice a thought and ask yourself, for whom does this thought arise? He's saying, look back, keep going back. Or in Zen, it's take the backward step. All of these, at least in this first phase, are really trying to get back to that sense of subjectivity and realizing that you're assuming and overlooking yourself as a distinct entity apart from everything in consciousness without knowing you're doing it. And the moment it clicks, it's like, whoa. Another way would be notice the space between thoughts. What is it made out of? Or follow the thought back to the sense of I, and then back to the thought and see if you can actually find a dividing line or a gap. If you have access to, or it makes sense, just rest in the sense of pure I am. I am before I am becomes anything. That's one of those sayings that like, once you've done it, it's so easy. But if you haven't, it's so slippery. So I just kind of try to offer different things and, and suggest to people, try whatever, you know, try these different ways of approaching it and find what works for you. But you're really kind of looking for a, a aha moment. It's really a eureka moment. It's not a, oh, I see things differently now. It's like the one that sees anything is suddenly a different thing <laughs> and it's a much bigger thing and it's an expansive and you know the deal. So with transcendental meditation specifically, after that happened for me, I remember I would sit down to meditate and I would like say the mantra like twice and it would just go into this place. So there was no technique needed. And then it dawned on me that there's no technique to pure consciousness because pure consciousness is always here, regardless of what you take yourself to be. So any specific practices to meditate pretty much fell away because meditation became a very accessible thing for me, I guess. Seems to me perhaps that the years of meditation you did do laid the ground for you to have the clarity of we could call it clarity or we could call it discernment for this process to work. Because I think for a lot of people, there's so much inner clutter. You know, it's like, 
blooming, buzzing confusion, as I think William James put it, that, you know, if they close their eyes, there's just so much going on. It's like, you know, using the movie screen analogy, it's like they've been in the theater for so long and the movies are just so intense on the screen that any talk of sifting through the movie and seeing the underlying screen is fruitless for such Mm. people. And obviously different people are at different stages, but even in the tradition of Vedanta, there's a sort of an understanding that different people need different preparatory stages in order to get to the point of the intellectual, if you want to call it that, um, discernment that can take you across the threshold or lead you to the threshold. Yeah, I agree. I always encourage people to meditate if for no other reason, just to relax the body, relax the mind. The only thing I would add to that is, you know, if you've been meditating for several years and, and you really feel like a significant shift in identity hasn't occurred or something still feels stagnant about it, which is kind of how it was for me. It was very relaxing, but it wasn't a shift in identity. You might want to consider self-inquiry of some form or inquiry of some form, looking into what the actual structure of the mind and thought and perception is. But I agree that sometimes you just got to quiet the mind for a while before you even have the capacity to start to investigate this stuff. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything wrong with me or not. I've I've been meditating regularly for 54 years. And I feel like if I were to step from where I was when I started to where I am now, experience the contrast in my subjective state, it would kill me. If I had to go back to that, I guess. It's been dramatic, but it's been incremental also. Some people, they have these dramatic shifts and flashes, and others, it's more incremental. But you know, one thing I don't get, and I don't think has happened to me, is this sense of no identity, no personal identity. I've had conversations with people about this, and I honestly don't understand it, because it seems to me that you couldn't function without any sense of personal identity. If you were given the choice between someone whacking a a rock in your yard with a hammer or whacking your knee, you would definitely choose the rock, because there's some sort of association with the knee. (laughs) Uh, so yeah. there's some kind of flavor of identity there, is there not? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that is true. So much of this comes down to like really what you're defining when you say it. And my opinion is I put the impetus on myself to define it. If I'm going to use a term like consciousness, I better be able to wait. I damn well better be able to define it to somebody who actually asks the question. So I'm pretty precise with the language. And, and, the, and the reason is your question is very, very good and important. Is there no ability for me as Angela to say, I prefer Mexican food over eating gravel? Of course, that's true, right? But it's true based on a reflection in thought. It's true based on looking back and seeing that's what Angelo tends to do. He tends to like this kind of food better than that kind of food. Now, I don't think of it that way in a third person way either. That would be bizarre, but I can say it in this moment. What really changes and is very interesting about choice is that... It's not even that there aren't preferences. There's just nobody that feels like they're pushing and pulling on those preferences anymore. It's like they don't apply to anyone. It's, it's like they're free-floating. Everything is sort of free-floating. And it's even true that I could say choices are made, but if I'm really accurate, it's almost like the whole environment just makes the choice. It's a self-propagating, self-responsive environment of, you could say causes and effects, but it's more just sensations and visual experiences and sounds, and they just sort of do things like they take a step or they eat. And in that moment, in that happening, there's nothing that's going, oh, I prefer this or I don't prefer that. It's just how it's happening. And so for instance, if pain is felt, 
in that experience. Like if, if I were to do something, the body is going to move away from that immediately. But what it feels like experientially is the whole environment just adapts. It responds, but it, there's no reactivity. There's no internal contraction of a self that goes, oh man, that was miserable. I hope that did, that my foot is okay later. And I got to make sure I don't do that again because that was really miserable. And then the fear comes, what if, oh my God, what if I stepped on a, you know, what if I stepped off a cliff instead of a, right? Like that internal reaction that goes on and on and on and it's interwoven in the self, that's what stops. So choices can be made. Preferences are there, but the seeming self that's woven into all of it is what's gone. And the really weird thing about that is You'll never actually get anyone who experiences no self or <laughs> when the realization's there, you'll never get anyone to tell you what that self was that went away because it's not anything. So then it's that weird thing where you see, I know there's no self in here, but there's also no self in there. There's no self anywhere. The identity structure is really a movement of mind. And so I think that drops away on two levels. And the first level is like gross thought, meaning literal thoughts about, okay, I can see right now that I can't experience the past by thinking about it. I still am here. I can have a thought about the past, but I don't suddenly beam into the past. And then you can realize, okay, well, those kind of thoughts are distorting. And then there's thoughts about, well, I'm sure that person is going to respond to me this way, like my belief. So then I respond to them and then it creates an argument. Those kinds of gross thoughts and misperceptions and judgments, those can calm down dramatically after we can experience this unbound consciousness and so forth. What I think happens is there's another very fundamental layer of thought that's actually still operating. And it can be so easy to overlook because it actually looks like the world. It looks like the physical world. So when those thoughts start to fall away or however they fall away, it actually changes the way the environment looks. Like it makes it look like there's an inside and outside when those perceptual subtle thoughts are operating. But when they stop operating, you can see so clearly there actually isn't. And it's not a wild mind trip either, like it would be if you experienced it on ayahuasca or something. And that's because of the contrast, as you mentioned. When it's just seen that that's how it is, and it's not really any specific way, you can just see that the mind is trying to divide things up in a way that sort of makes sense for, for that collection of thoughts called the, maybe the ego or the self. It's just not happening. So then the formless nature of seeming objects and so forth is just really obvious suddenly. But there's no good language for it because all of our language is really designed to talk about agency, doership, communication from me to you and, ba and back, and which are all sort of dualistic in their confirmations. So this subtle layer of thought really has a couple of components to it. But one of them is just reactivity um, and seeing that the sense of being something, even the subtle sense of being something that's reacting to the environment. It's interesting you brought up preferences because it really does come down to that. And it's peeling away the, the natural preference or the natural, let's say, response or inclination that the body mind has to like this taste versus that taste, to enjoy a massage more than it enjoys slamming its finger in the door. Those don't have to be taken apart or messed with. You just get really clear at seeing what it is that feels like it's reacting to them that's contracting inward or that's feeling like a self, or that's responding in thoughts and turning it into a story. And those can like peel apart. And it's a very strange process when they do. And then once that happens, there's this pretty pervasive feeling of equanimity. Like it really does not matter what happens. You care about your family. You care about your health. You care about the world. Those concerns are still there, but you don't feel contracted when it doesn't go that way. Strangely, you can actually enjoy the kind of un 
manageableness of reality of life. You just see like, it, it's never going to go the way, you know, it's not going to ever go a hundred percent the way we want it to, but that can actually become enjoyable instead of causing a contraction and an inward movement into thought. And that unhooking makes a huge difference. Then you can actually start seeing, oh, the sense of actually being apart from this or apart from that itself is a subtle thought. And you can start to investigate where's the subject even come in that thought? Where is the sense of being a subject? And you start to experience things far, far more directly. And that's where the sense of self starts to unravel, in my experience. That's all very interesting. I can relate to a lot of that. For instance, in a way, you could say that the world is like a movie, a really good movie, where as things go on, you think, well, this is an interesting plot twist. You know, I didn't see that coming, but uh, wow, you know, you just sort of appreciate the intelligence that nature displays as things unfold. You are not the doer of them and, and you're not the screenwriter. So, you know, you don't try to interfere because there's a much wiser screenwriter. That's exactly <laughs> it. It's wonderful. It's really just enjoying. That's really the innocence. It's that childlike innocence, you know, of like, why did I ever convince myself I had to manage all this? Yeah. It's just silly, you know, especially when you have evidence to the contrary constantly that you can actually choose how everything goes. And then another thing I really got from what you said is um, the obvious um, quietude of your mind. I mean, Marshi used to talk about excitations of consciousness. In fact, Patanjali refers to thoughts as chitta vrittis or fluctuations or excitations of consciousness. And there's that verse in the Yoga Sutras that yoga or being union is the diminishment or the cessation of those excitations. Yoga is chitta vritti naroda. You describe beautifully how you're in a pretty much perpetual state where it's highly efficient and there's just not a lot of mental excitation which would add to the situation anyway, but it just mm -hmm. doesn't happen. And, and not, not because you're trying to prevent it from happening, you've just shifted to a style of functioning that is more efficient, you know, do less and accomplish more. And that's the way nature functions. I mean, if you throw mm -hmm. a ball, there are an infinite number of trajectories the ball could take, but actually given the laws of nature controlling its flight, it takes the most efficient possible trajectory. That's the way one's behavior can be. That's exactly how it feels. The thing about this too, it's like, it doesn't feel like anything special, but seeking ego mind, I, I know how it functions and it wants to, it actually wants to turn this into something to seek later for itself, <laughs> but it, there's nothing special about it. It's not an exalted state or anything. It's, it's so natural. natural and that's yeah. exactly how it feels. You feel like you feel like a force of nature, just part of nature, like a, a season, like this sounds a little hokey maybe, but I love the feeling of the seasons changing. I can feel the whole environment changing and it, it's just, it's the inside and outside have dissolved away. So, which they do every day in Denver. You can get a foot of snow and, one day and it's 70 the next day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it's very much like it just feels like it feels like natural is what it feels like and really a, a reverence for nature and just a love of whatever's there, whatever's in front of your face. It's such, such a simple thing, such a simple innocence. Yeah. Isn't enlightenment sometimes referred to as the natural state? Maybe in Zen or in, in other traditions, it's the naturalness yeah. of it is emphasized. Absolutely. And that's good to emphasize because it takes away the wow factor, you know, where people want to blow it into this extraordinary thing, like you're on some 500 microgram acid trip all the time or something, you know, just all <laughs> right. kind of, ah. <laughs> I think those experiences do happen for people on occasion when they really have this internal world they're living in and that feels stable and natural to them. And all of a sudden something really opens that up. It will be recorded by the, the mind that comes and reifies itself again as this massive mystical experience. 
but the actual experience itself is really very natural. It's like empty radiance almost. So as you mentioned earlier, contrast. Contrast makes things, when you have sort of a taste of your true nature, let's say, it makes it feel like a bigger deal than it is when you quote unquote, go back into the sense of being the experiencer of it. That's that funky contrast. But when it's moment to moment and natural, then it's just moment to moment and natural. It has a sense of reverence and sort of mystery to it, but you're not jumping up and down in ecstasy either. And you can feel pain. Like you can definitely experience, the body can definitely experience pain, physical pain. Of course. Yeah. Um, But even... Yeah. But even that, well, truly, yeah. But even that can be really different. I was having a tooth drilled maybe a few weeks ago, two teeth. And one of them, he numbed up well. The other side, he didn't numb it up too well. And I told him, I said, when I was a kid, I don't know if I have different root nerves or something, but the dentist was never able to numb it up. And I remember them drilling and it was so incredibly painful. I would have tears coming out and my hands would be clenched. I remember this so well, but the kind of kid I was, I didn't complain. I just sat there and like, you know, withered through it. Well, this time it was a very interesting uh, like opportunity because the other side, he started drilling. I felt that I started feeling that intense pain. And just for a moment, there was like something that wanted to run away from it. And then immediately attention just went fully into the pain. And he said, you can raise your hand if you're feeling pain and I'll stop and numb it up more. But I was actually like, no, I want to feel this. I wouldn't necessarily want to feel constant ongoing pain, but it was impressive how when attention fully went into it, I could feel all of the different textures of it. And because it was non-dualistic, meaning the sounds in the room and the walls and all of it were actually the part of the pain. And when that was recognized, it was surprising how actually tolerable it is. It was still very painful, but it was tolerable and actually fascinating in a very strange way. Just as an example, pain definitely still happens, but the resistance to it can be very quickly seen and it might just dissolve. And if that does happen, it's surprising how much we add to the accursedness of physical pain by having a little layer around it that says, I absolutely do not want this. I want to do everything I can to get away from this. The intensity of moving attention into mind and trying to distract yourself. And it's kind of like that scene in Fight Club. Remember when- uh, I didn't see it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so great. Brad Pitt slaps him and he, he says, quit running away into your mind. This is the best moment of your life. But he had just burned his hand with like caustic soda. Now that's extreme, but it is true that pain- like pleasure, like ecstasy and like really intense pleasure has a way of pulling attention fully into the body. And the ego doesn't like that. The ego wants to be up here and stay in charge. Yeah. But that can be a really uncomfortable movement of that pull into consciousness, into thoughts, into not wanting to be here when the, let's say conditions of the environment is, is really compelling to pull attention into the physical sensations. So when I saw that, it was like, whoa, that's really interesting. It's like going the last place you would ever think to go. And it actually made it better. Didn't make it go away, but it made it far more tolerable. Yeah. And obviously there are limits to that. You're yeah. an anesthesiologist and I don't think you'd volunteer for major surgery without anesthesia. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Of right. course. Everything is relative. Yeah. One theme that's pretty prominent in, I know in Vedanta and, and other traditions also is the idea of identification or overshadowment. That's what the movie screen analogy is about. And, you know, the idea being that one's true nature is shrouded by sensory input or even mental activity, and it needs to be sorted out so that it no longer is. Or perhaps we could say the um, stability or fullness or clarity of pure consciousness needs to be enhanced to the point where sensory bombardment, even intense bombardment, or the dullness of sleep isn't going to overshadow it. In fact, 
when you respond to what I just said, include sleep as a consideration, because in the TM movement, they made a big fuss about if you're really enlightened, pure consciousness is never lost 24-7, even during sleep. That's a really good question. What I would say is this, it's, it's very interesting that being able to experience the sense fields without filters, which are quite non-dualistic. There's no sense of subject object. It's like sound is this whole room, this whole room world universe. It's all just sound, just sound sounding. But what's very interesting about this is talking to, I've talked to people who they're on the like autism spectrum, for instance, and I've heard autism described, especially for kids is as the ability to filter out the senses is not the same as it is for someone who's neurotypical. So that means like you're walking down the street and your parents talking to you and they're upset because you're not paying attention, but all you hear or see is the sounds of the cars literally just bombarding you. And it's so distracting. It takes so much of your attention. It's overwhelming. And that actually points to exactly what you're saying. And that is until consciousness and particularly the identity, the the tendency of consciousness to form a dualistic identity in thought until that calms down quite a bit. It's like, you don't have the capacity necessarily to experience that completely boundless experience of the, of the sense fields. It's quite radical. And sometimes if it comes on for people, surprisingly, they at first don't enjoy it because you can't escape from anything anymore. There's no way to distance yourself from sounds and sensations and colors and so forth. Now, if it happens over time, it's more comfortable the transition and so forth usually. But for someone who is living in an internal world of thoughts and, and the, the self that feels like it has to manage everything, to have that almost inability to filter the senses can be really overwhelming. So yeah, I think it does take a measure of, of stabilizing consciousness, or even you could say the I am sense, the pure I am sense, or the ability to just remain as conscious beingness. It's not like you go from that and go out to discover what non-duality is or no self-realization is. It's not like that. It's more like as the polarities in that space of consciousness calm, the water ripples calm, the movie calms, as it just becomes calmer and calmer, it starts becoming obvious what the subtler movements of reality are. The dualistic mind constructs start to dissolve a little bit and, and things feel so much closer, more alive until they literally replace you. My Zen teacher had had said this a few times and I always loved when he said it. You know, he would say, I tried to merge myself with things. I would look at a flower and get so frustrated because I couldn't merge with it. And uh, the Sangha would laugh and he'd say, well, it wasn't funny. Like it might be funny now, but it was really frustrating for me. And he said, it finally dawned on me. I just have to learn to be quiet through and through, starting with the mind and then the body. And when you're quiet through and through, at some point, the mountains and the rivers and the sunshine literally come forth and replace you. And that is really how it is. So I fully endorse really calming the mind, uh, investigating the nature of that I am sense, stabilizing unbound pure consciousness, because I think it reasonably naturally leads into the deeper stages of realization, including the self-structure falling away as well. Sleep is interesting. I have investigated that on occasion. One time, not too long ago, because a friend asked me, she said, how are dreams for you? when you're in dreams, do you feel like you're stuck in the dream and you feel like you're in this dream story? And I said, you know, it's interesting. I don't pay attention to that too much, but let me look and see. So for a few nights, I would purposely tell myself, okay, remember the dreams and try to package it so I could explain it later. And what I found was very interesting. It even surprised me. It was that when I'm dreaming, when I'm in dream sleep versus deep, deep sleep where there's no content in the mind, 
but in dream sleep it feels just like being awake and and the thoughts the mind activity the movements and consciousness feel sort of dreamy and unreal so it's just like being awake for me in that i don't buy it there's something underneath it that's not a thing that's aware no matter what whether it's in deep sleep dream sleep or waking sleep you could call it your true nature but it doesn't have a name and that is always there it's it's so primary though that it doesn't even self reflect and then on top of that you can have a an experience of conscious experience conscious being and in the waking state it's this and the dream state is just an altered version of this but in either state for me now when i've looked at it there's no taking identity from it like i can think i can ha- i can have thoughts the mind is pretty calm but i can still have thoughts um i can communicate thoughts and ideas to people um so i can use them in those practical ways let's say use thoughts and concepts and so forth but there's nothing that believes it there's, strangely enough it's it's like a play and behind it there's nothingness or emptiness or shunyata or the undifferentiated or indeterminacy like this undifferentiated aliveness not blankness or blackness or bare awareness it's more it's the substance of substancelessness from which substance arises i don't know but that's underneath it all the time whether it's in dream sleep deep sleep or waking sleep or, or waking 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 up being awake that's interesting yeah i mean obviously true nature or whatever you want to call it is not maintained by virtue of thinking about it mm-hmm. if it if it were it wouldn't it couldn't be maintained because we can't think about anything all the time um and anyway it's absurd to suggest that it could be and so that would apply to waking dreaming and deep sleep deep sleep is the only of those three states in which you can't think anyway the thinking is totally shut down but i think what i heard you say is that even there there's something different about the nature of your experience than there was you know when you were a teenager or whatever before your awakening uh, because in some sense, you know, even though you're not mentally active, that true nature abides. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a great way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you make that a little bit more vivid? How do you know if you're not thinking thoughts? Does true nature sort of recognize itself in a non thinking way? And mm-hmm. you're like, here I am without actually saying that. Or is it in retrospect, as you come out of sleep, you think, oh, that was there the whole time. Or how does it work? I'm sure it's going to be hard to explain, but do your best. It's very, very hard to explain because there's no subjective experience. First of all, the subjectivity is not there. This is below the split between subject and object in, in actual experience, in the, in the physical experience. And by below, you mean more primordial, more fundamental. More fundamental. More, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's not self-aware in any way that we could possibly think about it. So I could almost say what's not happening is the loudest thing in the room <laughs> all the time. And I can't even differentiate right now from deep sleep, literally, from that place, which is not a place. There's not even time. There's not even an ability to differentiate time into slices of this, then this, then this. It's before conditions arise. So before conditions arise even the, the conditions that create the environment where the body mind is sleeping, dreaming, or waking, it's there before the apparent split of those conditions. It's so hard to talk about this. Yeah. I, I might call it something like undifferentiated or the unconditioned. It's almost like if you follow the, tra- the trajectory of how identity deconstructs itself, it starts to make sense that you trust, take reference from, 
and recognize as reality things that are more and more and more and more subtle rather than things that are more and more gross and well-defined and thought constructs. So going the other direction, it starts to become more clear when it's less manifest, when it's less constructed, when it's less differentiated, more clearly just the case, more clearly instinctually trustable, let's say. We're really in the realm of no description talks about this, to be honest, but it can be something you might get a flavor of is, is all I would say to anyone listening to this. So there's several themes here. One that you just said, I think, is you become more acclimated to functioning at subtler levels. You become more accustomed to appreciating, perceiving, operating at subtler levels. Sort of like if you're in the habit of going to heavy metal concerts all the time, it'll take a while to get used to Vivaldi or you know, something more refined or Enya or you know, something like that because you're used <laughs> to the intensity. Am I right so far on that? Yeah, I think that's very good. The, the attunement to subtlety is very important. Very important. And even what you described when we first started about this process you went through, discerning the arisal of thought and uh, you know, following them back to the, their source and so on and so forth, that's a very subtle process. You remember the analogy, perhaps, of um, the thinking process being like an ocean where you have waves on the surface and then maybe thought bubbles coming from the bottom of the ocean, bubbling up to the surface, getting larger and larger and then popping on the surface. So, you know, what you're describing here is being able to be a deep sea diver where you're able to get down right near the source of where those bubbles arise and kind of examine them at that level rather than sitting on a boat on the choppy surface waiting for them to pop. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I would say even once you're down to that level, then you also realize you're the, you're the ocean, the water that allows the bubble to form within it. And you're also the bubble. And then you start becoming interested in the subtlety of the nature of, you could say the bubble's relative and the ocean is absolute or something. You start to become attuned to the subtlety of the dance of nature, of, of the nature of relative and absolute itself. You could also say it's what is the nature of oceanness? What is the nature of what even allows any of that to happen? And it's something like the aggregates, like the Buddhist aggregates, what actually causes experience to even be possible or what it causes appearance to be possible. So really, it's just like you're looking closer and closer and closer and closer. And it's something like those, I can't think of the name of those computer generated images where no matter how close you look, it's another representation of itself. And it just goes inward infinitely. Fractals? Um, Fractal. It's a fractal-like. So it's like, there's no end to how deep you can look. There's no end to how much subtlety there is. There's only a limit to subtlety in the world of separation where gross and subtle are separated. But the general attunement to the subtle versus the gross and content-laden mind is the key here. And and it it really will take you through deeper and deeper into your own instincts of what subtlety means, your own instincts about what is being experienced right now or what is experiencing it right now as all of this. It's very interesting because this thing about the particular, the seeming particular, meaning one sound or one contact point I can feel or the foot on the floor, that is simultaneously that. And it's also everything I can see, feel, hear, taste, touch, and all of consciousness. It's one thing and everything simultaneously, and it never loses its oneness and it never loses its everythingness. There's a sort of, you could say, interplay between those. There's a, a term I think Dogen initially used. He may not have been the first one to say this, but of total exertion. Total exertion is the whole universe is totally exerting itself to create literally one footstep or one bite of food. And it's the only time that's ever happened. Does only- that allude to the 
complete interrelatedness or interconnectedness of everything. That's exactly it. It's right. And the the interconnectedness is not as if there's a bunch of objects with hidden connections, but rather the potentiality that appears as all of the multitudes also appears at the same time right now as one singular experience. And the singular experience doesn't lose the multitude and the multitude doesn't ever neglect the singular experience. So it's kind of like being the whole environment and also being the environment sort of aware of one thing in the environment and also being that one thing that's also aware of itself as the environment all at the same time. And this is the value of not having this sense of subject object, which always divides everything into me and everything else conveniently. Maybe as an example, if you know yourself to be that which is all pervading, which pervades everything, then wherever you look, you see yourself as in a way in that thing. You know, also, even if you're not seeing what's on the dark side of the moon, you know that you pervade that as well. I mean, That's exactly right. And, and you know it beyond doubt, which is very strange. And it doesn't, this does not make any sense to the scientific mind. It just is not logical. But from the level of identity, which is identitylessness or not a personal identity at all, you know that what you just said is absolutely true. The sense of the nose or the blur of looking at your own nose or a sensation in the hand or foot is just as close and just as far as the dark side of the moon. And that's it's a literal living reality right now. It's amazing and it's always a bit surprising, but it's also natural and simple because we can see that the boundaries that seemed to define the world were really all relating to the, the one central misunderstanding and that is that there's a self apart from everything. Yeah. Did you find that that developed in a way sequentially in in other words that initially it was with reference to things in your immediate proximity and that the circumference kind of expanded out over time until eventually it incorporated everything? For me I think it was a little bit it wasn't so much expanding outward it was more situational. So I'd be looking at somebody and thinking in terms of, okay, what's important to me about that person? What do I think of that person? Or how are they appearing to me? And all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, those are all just thoughts in my head. And then all of a sudden I was that person looking back at me at the same time (laughs) when I realized all of what they're concerned about has nothing to do with what I'm concerned about. The way they see the world is completely different than the way I see the world. Why in the world is mine more important or more real or anything? And all of a sudden it wasn't. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm here and there at the same time. So it sometimes just happens situationally, like a little taste, and then it can clarify more and more through the senses, really. Like, I think the easiest way to investigate it is through sound, sensation, kind of like the Bahya Sutta, as Buddha described, you know, in the seeing, just the seen, in the hearing, just the heard. By investigating one sense at a time, even just walking throughout the day, you don't have to do this while you're meditating, recognizing, oh, just sound. And then you realize there's no limits to sound. There's no barrier to sound. Indirect experience. There's no subject in sound and there's no object. The only way I can perceive a source of sound is to imagine it. The only way I can perceive a hearer of sound is to imagine it. I'm not hearing my ear. I can imagine the visual experience of my ear, but that's not the sound. And then it's just starts becoming clear. Oh, sound is just doing the hearing. There's just sound. And then when it starts to apply to the visual field, that's when things really look different. My hypothesis on this of why that takes longer, because often sensations and sound are easier and taste is easy. You can close your eyes when you're tasting good food and boom, it just fills up everything. There's no, there's no center, no outside, anything. But with the visual field, I think it's a little trickier, probably because of brain function. This is just a theory. But our, 
occipital lobe, the back of the brain, uses the vast majority of the oxygen consumption a lot of the time. And the thalamus is like what projects the rays or the information to the occipital lobe, but just as many neurons carry it back to the thalamus. So the brain, the occipital lobe is adding a lot more into the visual field than it's actually there to make it look solid and progressing and having defined lines and stuff. So I think because the brain function really concentrates on that, it probably takes people a little longer. But when the visual field is suddenly non-dualistic, it's like a trip. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. Adi Ashanti described it really clearly in his book in the second chapter, I think, of uh, emptiness dancing. But he talked about when this happened for him. And it was wonderful. He said, I got up and looked at the toilet because I wanted to confirm that it was true for everything. And it was, you know, it was, I was there and I was here and I'm in the toilet and I'm me. And, and it's like just natural. Again, it's not a big deal because once you see it that way, it doesn't typically go back. It just is that way all the time. And it's kind of natural. And you can still see how the mind tries to put things together in a subject object way. You can recognize still the mind's overlay and how the mind tries to put together subject and object and how it tries to put together space and dimension. Like, yeah, there's a room here and there's objects that are distant and there's objects that are closer and I'm at the center of it. It's clear how thought makes it look like that, but there's no identity taking itself from that. So it's just a thought. It's like watching a picture on the screen. It doesn't actually change the non-dualistic nature of the environment at all. So the example I gave is I can imagine something like a blue dragon or I can imagine a pig right now, but it doesn't suddenly appear in this room. And in the same way, I can imagine separation and boundaries, but it doesn't make them appear in this environment because they just don't exist here. So it's like that. You see so clearly how thought makes things look when there's something that feels like an identity looking through the lens of thought. When there's nothing looking through any lens and thought isn't a lens, it's just a thought then it's no big deal. It's, and then usually the, the mind calms quite a bit because there's just no reason to take reference from it for these sorts of things. Interesting. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the subtlety you were mentioning a few minutes ago. The way you described it, it almost sounds like a lifelong process of refinement where there'll be just subtler and subtler and subtler appreciation of whatever it is we're pondering do you feel that's true in some sense? That Absol- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, that actually points to an important point I want to make that to the sense of being a self in time or a seeking self or whatever, it would seem that once that self disappears or, or the, the illusion of it just kind of ceases or something that, well, there's, no, there's nothing to seek. There's no seeker, which is all true. And there's no self to want anything. And that's all true. And there's, there's no one to practice. That's true as well. But I will say this, the fascination and the, the um, interest in and the, the respect for, call it what you want, the Dharma, unfiltered reality, truth, goes through the roof. I mean, you, because you can't hide from it anymore. So to say it comes to an end or something finishes, this never finishes. It's not a, this world of the formless is not ever finished. It's endlessly dynamic. And the refinement and the, the interest and subtlety and the clarity, it does continue for sure. It's nice because there's no sense of something depending on it anymore. There's no sense of my happiness hinges upon this. That's gone. So it's just a, a, just a simple natural enjoyment of I could sit there and stare at the wall for four hours. And that's probably the best thing, you know, like I love to sit. It doesn't even have to be a practice of meditation or anything like that, but just the, the depth of experience is so enjoyable. So you don't have to do anything special to add enjoyment to your life anymore because it's already here that might not sound desirable, or I don't know what that sounds like to somebody who has a lot of identity built into goals later on in life and getting places. 
But I will say that it doesn't mean you stop doing anything. You still can be active and still engage in things. And you can still make plans, of course, but it's a very simple thing. It happens in the moment, a plan is made, it's forgotten about. My self-esteem does not depend on that plan. Whether I'm a good person or bad person doesn't hinge upon whether that plan completely blows up in my face or actually comes to fruition. So things in the practical sense continue on. The conventional world carries on just fine, but it is infinitely subtle and it, and, and it can just be zoomed into at any moment. And it is all the time in a sense, into the sense fields, into consciousness. And there's not even boundaries between those really, unless I talk about it. There's not a boundary between self, other consciousness, the sense fields, the body, the mind, the external environment. There just aren't boundaries. Siri carries itself deeper and it carries itself on. Yeah. My whole understanding so far is that there's this evolutionary force in the universe or something, trajectory or force, and that it operates on every level and always will be operating. St. Teresa of Avila said it appears that God himself is on the journey. The word santosh came to mind, which means contentment. There's mm -hmm. a contentment that dawns. And so, you know, it's not ruffled. It's not added to significantly or detracted from significantly by the successes and failures in life, but it's, it provides a beautiful foundation and it doesn't deprive you of motivation. You can be very content and yet at the same time have all kinds of interests and aspirations and um, fascination with the subtle explanation you're talking about, for instance. Yeah, I, I would even say, at least for me in my life, with that kind of contentment, things uh, are certainly more effortless. Uh, in a sense, everything is effortless. In the relative, I can tell you, sure, the body gets tired if I work long hours or stay awake too long. And so that's all true. But generally speaking, moment to moment, things just feel enjoyable and effortless. I probably do more than I ever thought I would do as far as how much I kind of accomplish during the day. But what's really strange about this is there's no fixation on that as how I need to be because that could change tomorrow. Tomorrow, I might sit all day long in presence and just meditate and not do anything at all. And there's, that's fine. That's just what's happening. I don't need to go against that. It feels natural to do that. So shifting gears, expectations changing for you, those kinds of things that are actually quite heavy when there's a self that's always trying to manage everything. Suddenly those are no big deal. In fact, they become enjoyable when it's like, oh, well, I just blew up. Okay. That's not going to happen. I didn't know I was going to finish the book till I finished it. I wasn't sure. You know, There's a nice phrase, which you may have heard, which is Brahman is the charioteer. Meaning yeah, yeah. you're not driving it anymore. <laughs> it is beautiful. A question came in. Let's ask that. Uh, this is from Michael in Austin, Texas. For my most transcendental moments, I hesitate to label it as experiencing pure consciousness. It seems to me that pure consciousness is more transcendent than the most transcendental moment that I, quote unquote, experience. When you say pure consciousness, are you speaking metaphysically or is it more your experience of personal consciousness or other? It's a very experiential designation or description I'm using. And there are other ways to say it. I don't have to use the term pure consciousness. Depending on who experiences it, some people would describe it as the pure sense of I am very clearly. That's, that's what it is to them. And it's, it's just undeniable. It's not questionable because it's the primary sense of knowing and it's I. Yeah, so that, that's how some people experience it. Other people would, would describe it as pure being. But I think the key factors, to, I say consciousness because to me, you enter this through the thought gate. 
through the thought space, through the thinking place. That's usually where you come in contact with this unbound consciousness. When I say unbound, I mean not bound by subject, object, or thinker and thought, or it's not divided up by thoughts. So the labels don't matter so much as some of the qualities of it. So one of the qualities of it is it's like no matter how far you go in that, you never stop being that. You never come across anything that's not that. Whatever direction, even if there's not really directions in it, which there kind of isn't, it's deep, infinitely deep, infinitely up, down, back, forward. It's all the same stuff. It's purity of experience. And it's the primary knowing of experience as anything you take yourself to be. I would say that the litmus test for what I would call an initial shift or awakening or Kensho, which it can be quite dramatic, but to be honest, it can also happen slowly over time. It definitely does that at times. When you really pound on it with self-inquiry, it tends to be a pretty dramatic shift, but it, it doesn't matter. Um, but the, the litmus test for that, in my experience, is that something about who you take yourself to be has significantly changed. It may have changed so much that you don't even take yourself to be anything specifically. It just feels like what felt enclosed, small, thought-based suddenly feels like, boom, it's just all around. Everything all around. When I sit and meditate, I can just go into the space so easily because I'm already there. It's not a me having that experience. What I used to consider the experience of consciousness is now primary. It can turn into a bunch of thoughts, but the identity is primarily the consciousness or the substance of thoughts or the, the being space or the thinking space. That's the best way I can say it. Sounds good. Let's spend a few minutes on definitions because we're throwing around a lot of words and there's some more words we might throw around. And words are only useful if everybody shares their definition. Otherwise, it's like Tower of Babel. There's awakening and you distinguish that from liberation I picked up in your book. When I use the word, word awakening, and, and you're right, some people use these differently and met people who use the word awakening for liberation. It's not common, but I've heard it used that way from people who know, from as far as I can tell. So it is important when you're interacting with a given individual who's written something about it to really ask them if you don't know what the heck they're talking about. When I say awakening, I usually mean the first shift in identity. Um, you could call it stream entry, depending on how you define stream entry, if, if you're Buddhist and looking at the, the Fetter model or whatever. In Zen, it's called Kensho. And in Zen, especially Renzai Zen, it's very typically marked by a, a quite a dramatic shift in a huge emotional outflow. But I think there's a reason for that. And that's the way they typically approach it is through a koan called Mu. And it's also approached through very intense practice. So when you put that much effort and intent into something like Mu, as you're supposed to, that's how it's designed, or that's how it works. In a sense, you, you actually concentrate your, your frustration, you concentrate your struggle, you concentrate your suffering. So it's very dramatic when all of a sudden that just stops happening. When all of the struggle stops, all, and you see the causeless truth, you see what Mu is. You see, you know, that's how you break the koan Mu. You're not going to go tell your teacher what it is. You'll walk in and sit down in front of your teacher and your teacher will know Mu just walked in and sat in front of them. It's that dramatic of a shift. So, um, so that's called Kensho or Satsuri. So it's dramatic for that person, but if someone yep. has taken a different path where there's an in a gradual, incremental, subtle development, I've heard Adyashanti say this too, that they might not even recognize the shift has taken place and yet something profound yeah. has taken place. I've seen that a couple of times of people I've worked with where I talk to them and, and they feel very clear in the sense, I feel like I'm talking to someone who's gone through that, but they don't think they have. And I'll, I'll sometimes talk to them for a while and it'll actually come up and they'll say, oh, 
yeah, seven years ago, no, I had this thing happen and it changed my entire life. I'm like, you don't think that was an awakening, huh? And they think about it. Like, oh, is that what that was? Because if you don't have context for it, and by the way, I've met many people who have awakenings who have no background in this at all. They don't have spiritual backgrounds. They haven't been practicing and they haven't been doing any kind of self-inquiry really, or they've accidentally done self-inquiry. Somewhat like uh, Eckhart Tolle describes in his first chapter, he says, suddenly it just dawned on me to ask, well, who am I then? You know, if, Am I this or am I that? So people do kind of come across this almost on accident and it's a sort of self-inquiry. When it happens to you in that state, in that setting where you really have no information or no knowledge, I've heard it interpreted as I thought something went wrong with my brain. I thought the world just disappeared or, but they don't equate it to spiritual awakening necessarily until later when they learn about it. So I've seen that a, a few times as well. I interviewed a woman a few months ago named Lucy Grace in New Zealand, and uh, she had undergone some really profound shifts, but she didn't have the context, you know, she didn't have a, she had a rather difficult life, you know, rough neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, in any case, she was sort of like, what is happening? What's going on? And she was waking up one morning. And just as she was waking up, she heard a voice say, Buddha at the gas pump. And she said, what? <laughs> What's that? You know, but she Googled it and found this and started watching all these interviews and filling in all this information that she had had left. And there are other stories like that, too. There was one woman, Kieran, who was tying her shoelaces one morning and all of a sudden, boom, big shift, had no context for it, wasn't thinking about spiritual things. So it's kind of in the air these days. People do have awakenings. And I think we can talk about this, too, that there's a real value to knowledge as well as experience to keep everything balanced and yep. not, not freak out over something, which is actually a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just knowing it's okay, what you're going through. That's I've had so many people tell me the biggest thing you did for me was tell me it's okay. What you're going through. Not exactly. only is it okay, you're not an alien. You're not the weirdo of the world. Like it's perfectly okay. And you can attune to it and you can turn your attention to that instinct. I've had people reflect that back to me a lot. And so it's, it's also why I don't try to enforce a, a structure on this, a rigid structure or terminology stuff. It's helpful, but I, I really tell people to hold it lightly because it's a very intimate experience too. It's a very intimate process. It's about you. It's about your identity so and so forth. So um, when you say awakening, breakthrough, big, nice thing, are you also suggesting that it's perpetual after that? Or is it more like it could be really beautiful, but then you lose it again? Once that's happened, there's almost always a honeymoon period that follows it that lasts usually a few months, at least I've heard of people having it for like two years where they literally felt like they were enlightened for two years. And then, then it kind of went away and then they had to do some other, but there's a honeymoon period where you really do kind of feel enlightened. meaning that feels like there's no boundaries anywhere. And you feel the, the sense of non-doership is obvious and, and the clarity and the flow. And, and you, you know, you're like a child again, it's really a wonderful time. And that's quite typical. What happens after that is I think a point of confusion in this whole process. And that is you'll actually start feeling maybe even a little bit worse than you felt before awakening, <laughs> but a different kind of worse. Before awakening, a lot of what, I'll just talk from my own experience, a lot of the suffering that was there was just massive avoidance patterns. I was avoiding everything. I was avoiding my thoughts. I was trying to push everything away. There was just massive struggle and that sucked. But after awakening, that stops largely. And it might start a little bit again, but what starts happening actually is that you start feeling things very intensely and very directly, especially emotions. When that happens, your mind will even interpret that as worse because 
that's what you thought you were trying to avoid before awakening with all the mental activity and noise and struggle. And you weren't doing any of this. This is all just conditioned stuff. This is, this is maybe call it pain body or whatever, but it's, this is conditioned in human consciousness and it's transmitted from person to person. So you never decided to do any of this, but that massive avoidance mechanism that was there before awakening, causing all the suffering. Now the mind sort of interprets that a different way. It says, wait a minute, I can't avoid anything now. Now I don't want this. I don't want to feel fear as fear where I can't talk myself out of why I shouldn't be feeling fear. You just have to feel it. Right. So you go through this period that could be called a dark night of the soul, or it could be called shadow work. I, I usually say shadow work, emotion work, where it's really helpful to start to do some very practical things in the human realm. And that could include therapy, lots of authentic communicating with yourself, being real about what's happening and what you're feeling. And the, the hard part about this is what you really want to do now is you want to go back and have the awakening again. You want to go into that mind expanded space that you remember about what awakening was. There's a funny struggle that happens here. And there's also a, a flip-flopping that typically happens. It's like meing and being. There's periods where uncaused peace and being are just there. And you're like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden everything contracts back down and there's intense emotions and it starts to contract and then expand and contract and start to feel like you're on a roller coaster ride. And it's maybe I've called it like the spiritual no person's land where you're like, do I practice anymore? Do I not do anything? How do I practice? Is there any more? Is this it? And that starts to calm down. Again, attunement to the subtle, uh, willingness to feel everything that you feel, realizing that you're not in the driver's seat anymore is really helpful because things can shift so quickly. And once you learn, okay, if I actually shift with things, I don't resist things so much. Then you come to this place where you can start to address the sort of relational or reactive self. And this is the first layer or the grossest layer of self, I would say, that can remain hidden for the rest of your life. You may not even realize that's there if you just identify as the one who woke up and that was it. Like there's nothing more. You can convince yourself of that easily and live reasonably comfortably after that that really intense roller coaster calms down. But if you keep looking and go, no, I definitely feel like something's here. There's something that's still reacting. There's still contractions happening. There's a, a reactive tendency. There's a relational self that's keeping itself seemingly around in what it relates to all the time. It's pushing on things. It's like keeping life at a distance in ver at various times, even if that's not happening all the time. The fact that it's happening some of the time can be a clue that you can start to investigate a layer of identity or, a, or an aspect of self that's the relational self or the reactive self. And once you've worked through that, however that happens, sometimes it just happens through presence, through patience, through lots of meditation, some self-inquiry, maybe therapy or different kinds of work. Once that calms down, when the next barrier falls, the, the seeming barrier between self and other, it varies quite a bit. For some people, it actually falls very early. And for some people, it remains for a long time. The sense of being a subject to a world of objects in the actual world, in the actual experience moment to moment. The sense of, well, yeah, I know that I'm everything and everything is the same stuff and it's all consciousness. Like I know that and I can even experience that. And yet I'm still experiencing objects out there, literally. Like that seems like it's out there. That seems like it's out there. I still feel like I'm in here somewhere, even though I can't really find it. And that's the subject-object construct. And when that dissolves, then you start to truly experience what I would call what I would call non-duality, not like neo-advaita type non-duality, which is a sort of teaching style, but literally not experiencing the 
division between you and everything that's not you. When that's gone, things become very different looking. The sense of distance and space can be almost non-existent. The sense of intimacy is much more pronounced all the time. You feel intimate with things much more, but things can still look solid. They can look literal like objects and there can still appear to be boundaries between things. Now, sometimes that can even go away at the same time. So literally you're experiencing a world of formlessness. That would be clear non-duality. And that also can come with or without a sense of self that completely dissolves. If there's a sense of self remaining after you're experiencing boundlessness, which you wouldn't be experiencing boundlessness, there's just boundlessness, there can still be a subtle sense of self hanging around and you know it and feel it, but you can almost ignore it or not notice it. And it doesn't seem to cause any trouble because it doesn't really solidify, but it can still feel like a, a shadow over experience or something that is just waiting to come forward and contract experience a little bit or something like that. And when that goes away, I would call that liberation. It's the end of personal suffering because it's the end of personal anything. So I would technically call that liberation when the sense of self in all of its forms or all of the selfing mechanisms dissolve or stop or drop away. I would probably call that enlightenment, although I don't use the word either because it sounds like an exalted state or something. Liberation to me is liberation from personal suffering. I find this all very interesting. One reason is that a lot of times spiritual awakening has the connotation of being a state in which you are detached from everything and you are, you're hiding out in your transcendental bunker and you're not really impacted by stuff. There are even some verses in the, in the Gita which make it kind of sound like that. And what you're saying is a permeability where you actually feel everything much more viscerally or much more intimately, and yet you have the sort of superfluidity to absorb it or let it pass. It can pass through you as opposed to crashing into you or something. Yeah, it's quite the opposite of that sort of watcher state or the I'm pure awareness and witnessing. kind of witnessing everything. That is a phase I think people can definitely go through. And that's in that in-between phase. This is very much not that. You can't even make that anymore. You can't make that happen anymore. You can't subjectify anymore. One way of saying it is because of all the suffering, we have a very natural, very normal human inclination to want to escape the suffering. But the way our minds are put things together, we think we're going to escape by getting out somewhere, way out, you know, out, out, out. And then when you get an experience of that transcendent experience, then you think, oh, I need to go farther in that direction. That's kind of a mistake, actually, because that's, that's not where the real release is. The real release is when it comes back in. Again, it's like everything comes forward and replaces you or the boundaries in your environment go completely away. So now there's nowhere to escape to anymore. So what you find is you really wanted to escape into reality, but so far in and penetrate it so far that you dissolved into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. And then the second thought that came to mind is that what you described a minute ago describes my experience in a way where there's this nice inner settledness or relaxation or contentment or fulfillment and a sense of not constrained or bound or anything. And yet when I walk through the, the woods, Trees are trees. I don't get the sort of oneness thing that mm -hmm. you're describing or that, that other people describe. So I, you know, it doesn't bother me. I just assume, well, that's somewhere down the line, but it hasn't really become my living reality. Yeah, a lot of people are there. 
The thing about this is two things I will say to contrast to the ways we normally think about waking up more or spirituality. One is it's not about meditation so much. Keep meditating. That's great. But the inquiries you do with this are, are actually when you're walking through the woods or when you're doing work or when you're washing dishes or anything. And the other thing I'll say to contrast it is the work here is exquisitely simple. It's so simple. It's like walking through the woods and you see the trees and something in the mind says, okay, well, I know I'm moving towards those trees. And then look at the experience itself and just its pure, raw visual data and say, what in this is actually telling me that I'm moving toward those trees and they're not moving toward me? It can be bizarre because the mind will go, well, no, no, I know this. But then if you really look, you go, wait a minute, but I learned that. That's actually a thought overlaying my experience of walking through the woods right now. So again, when I look at the visual data of this, how do I even know those are trees? And how do I know I'm me walking towards those trees? There's just that visual experience. And then you just keep peeling those labels, thoughts, and interpretations away from it little by little. And with these little like empirical questionings, say you look at some trees and you just say, okay, there's a bunch of trees over there, right? I know that. Well, why do I know that? Well, there's la- I have labels that say trees and I-, I learned that. Okay. But what am I actually taking reference from? And then you might say, well, I see some lines and I see some color patterns. Okay. Can I go inside now and find the place that those lines and color patterns actually turn that into trees? or make them out there or put them out there. And when you can't find it, it's very strange. You're like, oh, how do I know they're out there? And then it's like, you start to perceive them inside and outside at the same time. So these kinds of very simple empirical investigations will start to show you how quickly the mind actually reflects back into thought. It'll grab that visual experience and turn it into a thought pretty quick. But by practicing this, that can actually change. And The other point I would give for anyone who wants to work with this stuff would be use another sense like sound. So if you're walking, say, through the woods or doing some dishes, just put your attention fully into sound. Like, I'm just going to take in every sound in the environment right now. It has 100% of my attention. Not differentiating sound. It's just sound. Now, can I just put my attention in the visual field and do the same thing? Just seeing colors, forms, nothing else. And just take it in that way. And you can actually teach yourself to experience the non-dual aspects because they're more available in sound usually in the visual experience. And it might start looking a little strange, like pixelated. Some people say, oh, oh, I'm seeing visual snow now. Or it might start to feel more intimate. It might look the same, but you almost feel it in your body. Like, oh, I can like feel what's over there. So these are just things that start shifting and changing a little bit. But if you just keep at it, usually that sense of the self and other will just actually collapse. It's just a matter of doing the work and, and looking into these things. I should probably turn my iPod off once in a while because I'm always (laughs) listening to something while I'm walking through the woods, you know, getting ready Mm -hmm. for the next interview. A question came in from my friend Conley Wright here in Fairfield, which is related to what we're saying, I think. She asks or says, there's a background hum or a dynamism behind, around, and enveloping everything. I can see the tree as the tree and nothing else. With a shift of attention, I am the tree. And with a little bit more openness, I can feel what the tree feels. Could I be making this up? Should I doubt the doubt? You're not making it up. And if you keep doing like those little exercises I described, don't be surprised if all of a sudden there's a pop and you are the tree all the time. And then you're the dirt and then you're the sky and then you're the footstep and then you're the sound. That's someone who's experiencing non-duality kind of intermittently. And the thoughts are just kind of coming and doubting it here and there. 
but you can certainly clarify that very easily. And I would just do those simple exercises. Just sit there and ask yourself, how do I even know that's a tree? Oh, there's a thought label, but then attention back to the visual experience. Or you can think about it like a newborn baby sees the world. I love it when I do the C-sections, you know, I do the anesthesia for a C-section when the baby comes, put it on the mom's chest and mom and dad and baby are there and we take family pictures. It's so much fun, but I love looking at the baby because it's just, it's just looking straight out. Absolute wonderment. It's not going, oh, there's the ceiling. Oh, there's my mom. There's my dad. It's just full on experience and holy, whoa. Yeah. And when you start to just approach the sense fields with that kind of awe, then this, these barriers start to collapse. The other little clue I'll give is it's not so much I'm going out to that because the mind tends to think about things like I'm doing something to reality. I'm doing something to my visual experience. It's like meeting it halfway or even letting the visual experience be what it is and then come to you in a sense and just let it remain in its raw form and don't turn it into a distant object. Don't turn it into a labeled object. Don't even turn it into a color or a shape. Just let it be what it is in its raw data form. That really helps, I think. I suppose one thing you want to be careful of, which people might get the impression from what you're saying, that it would be advantageous to kind of monkey with their minds all day, you know, playing with their perception and this and that. Seems to me one could get a little obsessed with that and, and disrupt the innocence and spontaneity of one's life. I generally don't recommend doing too much of this before any kind of shift or before you have access to this sort of unbound conscious state. But beyond that, if you do and you become become naturally interested in this, then I would say by all means, investigate it even throughout the day. It is okay. Like it turns out to be okay. But it, but if you do this too early, if you really, really push on this, you might be able to start dissolving these barriers before you're ready. But I, I think it would be an un- uncommon person to do this just because it's usually as uncomfortable to get out of the mind that long. It's more like do it when it starts to feel natural, when you start to already pick up on it, like the last questioner said that you start to pick up, oh, I actually can feel myself in the tree and I can feel the tree in me. So this brings us to a a practical consideration that I get asked about this. And they'll say things like, questioners will say like, is it bad to do this driving? And I usually say, don't do this driving, really don't do this while driving. But once the shift has happened for people to where they don't experience boundaries anymore, or they don't experience a subject and an object, driving usually goes okay, but you really should be careful at first. Like truly it's, it does change your perception and the way things appear you will get used to it. But like, if you just have this big shift and all of a sudden you've seen no boundaries anywhere, the first thing I would do is not get in the car and take a road trip. Be mindful, focus, pay attention, turn off the radio when you're driving your car right after this happens. Most people are basically okay with it. And they, they say driving is easy. And when you're working as an anesthesiologist and making a mistake could have life and death consequences. Are you monkeying around with uh, these contemplations or are you just focusing on you know what I'm administering to this person and watching the mm-hmm. monitors and all that? I don't really have to do that like as far as investigating them because once the non-dual experience is clear, it just stays that way. So when I'm working with patients, it's actually nice because it's so easy to focus. There's not the background thoughts of, oh God, what, what, if, what am I gonna do later? When I got off work, I'm hungry. There's so much less of any of that stuff that it's just quite enjoyable. And it's actually very easy to focus. But with driving specifically, the reason I say that is because it actually can affect your depth perception mm. for a while. Like close and far is fundamentally not actually different. And you know that, but you still have to keep using the way the thoughts put things together to, to operate in traffic and stuff. 
again, this isn't that big of a deal, but just be cautious. Like, you know, when you're going through this stuff and you'll know when you're going through it, it's not subtle when things start looking different in that, but I've, I've never seen anybody go crazy with it. I've seen people at first go, it's kind of uncomfortable because there's no escaping from anything. It's like everything's in me all of a sudden and I'm everything, but usually pretty quickly, they're more than comfortable with it and they start to enjoy it quite a bit. I have seen people tell me, yeah, I had to really focus driving more. I had to be careful driving just because distance and stuff does look different, but usually after a time, they're fine even doing that. A funny thing for me is that when I notice it isn't driving anymore. If I'm driving and someone's talking to me though, I kind of ignore them because I really have to focus in complex environments. Like if I'm in a city I've never been in, like I really have to focus because it does affect your distance perception and stuff, but it, I don't get near misses or anything. I just have to tune out other things. But when it does get me, it's kind of funny. Sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And I literally, I've done this a few times. I walk right into the wall because there's no wall there. And then I'm like, oh, wait, that's right. There's a wall there. Okay. I have to remember. No, thoughts tell you there's a wall there. So you have to remember there's a wall there. So I have done that, which is really hilarious, actually. That's funny. You used a phrase a minute ago that everything's in me. I was wondering whether this results in an increase in compassion or commiseration. You know, like when you watch what's going on in Ukraine, for instance, do you feel it much more? viscerally or poignantly than you used to. Yeah, that, that's really interesting with compassion. It, it does evolve in different ways. There was a period where my heart opened so much that like, I felt so much compassion for everything in the world that if there was a, a foreign event, uh, something that, like what's happening in Ukraine or a, like a disaster, I would want to go there. I would have to talk myself, okay, no, no, you're in med school. You can't just leave and go. I would have to remind myself I have to prioritize Angelo and, and the people around me and my responsibilities because it was so easy to follow my heart in a way. What's interesting is later on that actually changed. And I thought something went wrong with me because I, it's not like I didn't have compassion, but I didn't worry about anything anymore at all. So like, unless I'm watching the news about Ukraine, I'm not like contemplating it necessarily. All I can say is presence just becomes so compelling that you just have completely digested and, and realized that the most compassionate thing you can do is to be fully present ultimately. And I can't control all those things that go on the other side of the world. I care for sure. I've, I've donated some money. I watch this stuff and I, and I, my heart does go out to, to people in those situations, friends who have family there who, who are from Ukraine like that. Yeah, of course it's a tragic thing, but the moment you and I stop talking about it, I'm not going to be preoccupied with it. I'll just be engulfed in whatever's in front of my face again. What I find is in the moment, as the moment-to-moment -moment flow of life occurs, there's definitely a deeper appreciation of everything, undifferentiated. Like I, I, it's picking and choosing when it comes to love is not really possible anymore. It's, I just can't help but love what's in front of my face. Not in a naive way either. Like I still have boundaries. Someone didn't seem trustworthy or physically dangerous. I wouldn't put myself in a dangerous environment. And yet I still love them. Like I can still feel love for that person and everything they've been through in this lifetime and the suffering they've gone through that's brought them to where they are. Like I can feel those levels and, um, and because I can feel them in myself, of course. So yeah, there's definitely a, a feeling of love that just be, it starts to cultivate itself more and more and more in the simplest of things, in the simplest of movements of life, of being human and even in the complexities. When you say love, do you feel that at, at times it even takes on a not religious devotional quality in terms of God, the divine, you know, some higher intelligence like that that one can uh, surrender to or or feel deeply devoted to? 
Yeah, I would say if somebody feels that way or they're inclined that way, then absolutely that's completely relevant for you and authentic for sure. I wouldn't say it in that way for myself because it's not something out there. It's something in here. It's a deep reverence for the amazing ability of the unconditioned to bring forth any physical experience at all. Any appearance at all is so incredibly, in a sense, fragile but also miraculous. As far as devotional aspects for me, I would say when you started asking the question, what I, what hit for me was I feel a deep commitment to turning the Dharma wheel, so to speak, looking for anything that could be remaining in here that, that's still causing filters that can decrease the chance that this message could go out to somebody who could actually hear it. Again, I don't have a, an agenda for who hears it, but as you read in my book, I really tried to take out things, jargon and so forth that would, that would turn certain people off because I really want anyone who is suffering to know, like, it doesn't matter if you're blue collar, white collar, spiritual, not spiritual. You know, if you're scientific, if you're atheist, if you're Christian, if you're Buddhist, all of those people, it doesn't matter. Like you have this capacity because it's your true nature and it's, it's with you already and always. So I have a devotion to that. Good. A question came in from Michael Moran in Ireland. What is the relationship between being awakened and the ability to experience samadhi? Is the experience of samadhi a predictor of awakening in this life? It's an interesting question. I think that being able to develop states of samadhi is powerful. It's a good thing. As we were describing before, it calms the mind, calms the spirit, calms the body. When you talk about Buddhism and the jhanas or jhanas, these are very specific ways of concentrating and meditating that bring about states or experiences that correspond to stages of realization but they aren't in and of themselves realization. But Buddha literally said, learn to cultivate these states. I can't quote how he said this, but ultimately he's saying, because at some point you're going to realize this is your true nature. So any practice with samadhi and so forth, I I highly recommend. The only caution I will give is after a significant identity shift, if you come to the place where we brushed on before, where you have a tendency to sort of avoid or escape life by going into samadhi, by meditating you know, yourself into nothingness or spending all day meditating kind of like I wanted to when I first hit on it. If you're inclined that way, then I wouldn't tell you there's anything wrong with samadhi, but I would say balance that with other areas of your life. Look at your relationships, look at your work life, look at all those things and see, are there ways I can, I can actually become more authentic? Are there ways that I'm repressing emotions? Look at the, the practical human stuff and also be honest with yourself about your drive or desire to deepen your experiential insight, your awakening, if, if that if that's how you move, instead of just trying to be nowhere. Because we can try to sort of meditate ourselves into oblivion, but that's not enlightenment. I've said to people before, if contentless mind or nervicopal samadhi is, is equivalent to enlightenment, then every time you went into deep sleep, you'd wake up enlightened. Every time I give someone propofol and they have basically burst suppression and no brainwaves and no thoughts, they'd wake up enlightened. But having no content in the mind does not equate to enlightenment, but it does calm the mind for sure. And it can give you access to experiential tastes through the jhanas and so forth, if that's your practice of what non-duality is actually like or formlessness. I once got a colonoscopy and they gave me propofol and I, I joked that I was able to moonwalk afterwards. <laughs> sort of an inside joke. <laughs> I, I got I got you. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> So there's lots of cool sections in your book. We don't have a heck of a lot of time left, but I want to make sure that, I mean, I'll just mention a few and you can zoom in on anything you want to talk about more. Like There was a whole chapter about paradox, which I found fascinating, chapter on attention, 
there was a, a chapter on teachers and, you know, how to, if you're going to have a teacher, how to kind of make sure you don't get burned. Then there, there were a few chapters that I didn't get to yet. I read most of it. I actually heard you mention in the beginning of the book that this book is kind of about awakening, but your next book, which you may write, is going to be about post-awakening. And mm-hmm. I think maybe we've talked about some post-awakening stuff today, but the things I just mentioned, those three, four things, do you want to go into any of those a little bit more or many, maybe something I didn't mention? Yeah, the paradox chapter was like my favorite chapter to write that I remember right now, at least, because this is so paradoxical, this that we're talking about. Just the fact that we're sitting here talking about it and someone's watching it, it can look like we're talking about some special thing or something you can get or some mystical state, but it's so right here. That's the weird thing about it. It's nothing. It's everything and nothing. It is undifferentiated reality, but it's also a hand and it's taking steps and it's all the conventional things. There's no need to separate out conventional from absolute or relative from absolute at all, unless it's practical, unless I'm working with somebody or we're talking in this way, then we can unpack it. But in the the immediate experience, it's just simplicity. There's nothing special going on at all. It's miraculous. It's radiant and and luminous, this experience. And it's also completely normal, completely just regular stuff happening. I'm a regular guy. I go to work. I do the things at work. I have a girlfriend and I go on vacations and it's just regular life happening. It's, It's fun. But it it also can sort of unpack itself in a moment's notice into these incredible conversations with other people. And when I'm talking with someone and they're sort of in process or waking up themselves, there's no experience of I'm waking you up or I'm helping you. It's nothing like that. It's an energetic experience in the energy field just unraveling itself. It's a dance. It's uh, wonderful. And yet it's fine. It's normal. There's nothing special to be said about that. There are paradoxes all through this, and it becomes more and more paradoxical as realization clarifies, let's say. No self-realization is very, very paradoxical because there can still be even a thought of self. There's just no one it refers to, and that's exquisitely obvious. It would seem like, well, if there's no self, then there's no, you're not going to do anything, or you're not going to, you would become lazy or just um, disappear from life. And yet that doesn't happen. There still are appearances. And conventionally speaking, they can look like a self or a person. You can still answer when someone calls your name. You still know what people are talking about when they say self and other. Like, I don't have to pretend I don't even know what that means or something because that would be nonsense. Like, of course, I know what it means, self. I know what other means. I know how the mind makes it appear. And yet this is formless. There's no boundaries anywhere. There's not even time, actually, which is another really strange one. But there's no time. And yet, I can make a plan. It's easy to make a plan. I don't have to negate things that suggest there's time when it's clear that there's no time. I don't have to negate things that suggest a self when it's clear there's no self. So the conventional functions perfectly well. Uh, There's a really cool Zen master who used to just say over and over again, everything is perfectly managed in the unborn. His name is Bonky. And sometimes the most simple sayings like that can penetrate the deepest. Another paradox, everything we've been talking about sounds so complicated. There's these levels of things and all this man, it's so simple. And and to anyone listening to this, don't ever compare your own experience to anything I've said or Eckhart Tolle said or anyone said, because your immediate experience is the best thing there to wake you up. Your own immediate experience, just as it is, without the shroud of doubt, without comparing it to anything, that's it. It's that simple. Again, another paradox, but it's true. And trusting yourself is so valuable, but not your thoughts about yourself. And not your judgments about yourself and not what you've learned about yourself. 
go farther, keep going, trust your instinct until it's just a subtle voice, until it's just an impulse. And that kind of simplicity, you don't need anyone else to help you wake up. It's just there. I love that. Everything is perfectly managed in the unborn. That sentence itself is full of paradox, because how could there be things in the unborn? How could there be management going on if it's unborn? And actually, when you said that, what flashed in my mind is that we're seeing it. Everything (laughs) we're seeing is in the unborn. And it's being perfectly managed, yep. which implies that there's some sort of managerial intelligence in the unborn, latent or inherent within the unmanifest. There's intelligence or and impulses of intelligence, which manage the apparent manifestation, which has to be taken seriously, but actually isn't manifest. It just appears yeah. to be, you know, so they go back and forth with these paradoxes. I totally agree. I, I love the way you said that. And Sometimes people will balk, like, um, especially if, you know, if you're like hardcore Buddhist or something, you might balk at intelligence as if it's like a higher power. But the way you said it is right on the money. It has, how can you say it doesn't have some sort of intelligence coming into being? It's intrinsic to the, the expression of the unborn itself, the intelligence, but it's, it's miraculous. Like well, look at one of those way. animated yeah. videos of what's happening in a cell. I'm sure you've seen those yeah. and studied that kind of thing. It's just like mind boggling. We have just a minuscule understanding of what the, the totality of what's going mm-hmm. on in the cell. That's not random billiard balls just sort of banging into each other. There's mm-hmm. some incredible intelligence orchestrating that. And that's just one of trillions of cells in one body. And then there's yeah. everything else in the universe going the on. The cosmos. I yeah. agree. It's, it's really, really humbling yeah. and astounding. Awe-inspiring. Yeah, that's one of my predominant contemplations you're talking about contemplating things as you walk along and stuff you know i can just be walking the dog down the sidewalk looking at blades of grass and thinking of the miracle that is taking place within every cell in the blade of grass and then expand it out you know to Mm. everything it's just like we're little fishies swimming in that ocean of intelligence absolutely and we are that ocean of intelligence at the same mm-hmm. time. We're not just little fishies. And so you kind of just keep going back and forth like that. Yeah. It's Love a symphony, it. a symphony expressing itself and enjoying itself. Yeah. Self-interacting. So in terms of post-awakening, I mean, I'm sure there's tons of things. This is just a little sampling our, our two hours together today, but is there anything that you'd like to say about that? I mean, that's, that's really the, the remainder of your life is exploring all the nuances of post-awakening. You said you're going to devote a whole book to it. So uh, why don't you give us a, a little um, trailer? So the book I wrote here is 130,000 pages. And that's what? me trying... 137,000? 130,000, yeah. 130,000? That's a lot of pages. Yeah, when you said you didn't read the whole thing, I was surprised you read as much as you did because it's a very long book, yeah. You mean 137 thousand words not pages oh my gosh i'm so sorry yeah i didn't read that big a book Hundred and thirty thousand words yeah (laughs) i only sent you talking about the the library of congress or something no that's hilarious that's hilarious (laughs) 130,000 words and so as i was getting i was realizing how long this crazy book is i I wanted to just include everything in it i don't know why my mind came up with that idea but so then i thought well the next one i'll just make another book for sort of post-awakening but the specifics of it, it will be a much shorter book because when I'm working with people who are going through stuff post-awakening and, and clarifying these filters and so forth or dissolving these like identity filters, much of what I work with is really in the book and it's pretty basic stuff. It's beliefs, emotions. So the belief and emotion chapter and thoughts, 
those are all really, really helpful. And so much of the post-awakening stuff that is just the turmoil of reactivity and beliefs and emotions that we don't realize we can actually address in a, in a pretty direct way. So a lot of the work is that stuff. So this book does have a lot of that in there. The biggest piece of advice I probably have for someone who's had a shift and maybe they don't call it awakening, but they've definitely had a significant shift in their life. They may even have perceived it as a, as a sort of curse of some kind or some, something went wrong. I occasionally even see that if you didn't have any context for it. But my biggest piece of advice is be kind to yourself. Just realize like suddenly experiencing a ton of like shame and regrets and fears. And this is actually totally normal. It just comes to the surface. A lot of repressed material comes to the surface. I know it's, it's normal and you're okay. And that this is what happens after, after awakening is, you know, you're going to have periods of, of bliss and, and being able to just stay in presence for a long time. And then you're going to have periods where things are really heavy, a lot of struggle, a lot of emotion work to do. And that's normal. And that's yeah, okay. In my case, not struggle, but you know, I find myself feeling guilty with the way I broke up with a girlfriend fifty years ago and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, how could I have done you know, behaved that yeah. way? That weird stuff. Yeah. So something like that, it, it can be as simple as what I think causes most of the struggle and suffering that we experience throughout the day. It's really a simple formula, and that is, here's what's happening in life, or here's what did happen, and then here's what we want to be happening, or what we wish happened. It's amazing how with the complex minds we have, with the good experience we have and the knowledge, we still don't put that together. We still don't realize like I actually make myself suffer when I look at what is and I say, but that's not how it should be. I really wish it was like this. If it's an ancient memory of something, you know, breakup or whatever, it can be something as simple as I wish I would have handled that in a more conscious way. And I didn't handle it in a conscious way compared to what I would perceive right now. So maybe that's what Will Smith is thinking right now. You totally, yeah. I hope (laughs) he's listening. Uh, But yeah, you just say to yourself, it could be something specific as, okay, I I walked up and slapped somebody. I actually did harm to somebody. All right. I treated them unfairly. I treated them unkindly. That happened. And if I'm really honest, I want to pretend that didn't happen. I want to believe the world is this way where that did not happen. And yet, no matter how much I want that, it will never change. That actually happened. I treated someone unfairly. And if you're able to like feel into and see both of those perspectives, the, the actual perspective or the conditions that are, that are there and the perspective that, but I really just don't want to hold, I, I want to know I'm a better person than that. I, I want that to not have been the case. When you feel that discord, look into the body and find like, do I actually find like a, a, an energetic contraction or some something that's trying to escape the body, something that's that feels really uncomfortable, kind of like if you were to distill human discomfort down into a, like a, a serum and pour it into your body, it might feel like that. It'll feel really uncomfortable sometimes, like this restlessness, something that's just saying no, no, no. But the really good news is if you're actually able to do this and find that and just stay with it, not like dissolve into senses or something, but actually just hold that discord, hold that unknowing of the fact that I just cannot control life. And that, what does that make me feel like? And it's just uncomfortable staying in that discomfort gap that in and of itself can be really, really powerful. It's the kind of thing that does not feel good when you're doing it. And it's not where you would think to look, especially if you've had some shifts and you have access to consciousness, that's where you tend to go. You don't tend to go back to the root of discomfort. But if you go to the root of discomfort and you just actually feel it in the body and you let it be there, let it move where it needs to move into the body and just show yourself that you can actually stay with it. 
what most people will notice if they do this consistently with contracting experiences is later on, you'll be in a situation where something would have caused you to react or be upset that things didn't go your way. And all of a sudden, very noticeably, you have no reaction to it. It's literally like something's missing, like a sense disappeared. And then it's a very simple thing and it's a very neutral thing. But you realize, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing all these years. I've been actually overlaying my belief that life should be a certain way in very discrete instances over how life actually is. And that is what's causing me to react. That's what's causing me to feel non-equanimous or you know whatever. It's, it's, it's what's been hiding equanimity from me. And the more you do that, the more the equanimity will just start to clarify. And it just feels enjoyable to be in any condition. The other thing to look at would be frustration and impatience. These are so common in people. And it's very easy to find where you become impatient or frustrated just when you're in the grocery aisle, when you're in traffic and you're thinking about where you're going to be next. And the grocery aisle is a good one because what happens is you pick up your empathic tendency. You can see people around you shifting. You can see their faces. They look frustrated. The person behind me is frustrated. So I'm, I'm feel frustrated. Like I feel responsible to hurry up through the line. And you start to pick up like, oh, I'm producing the experience internally because I'm reacting to the environment through interpretation. Can I actually find a place of stillness right here where this is perfectly okay? Everything that's happening right now is perfectly okay. And if you work that way and you'll start to notice you feel less impatient, you feel less frustrated with how life's going. And then in moments where you really would normally want to be fully engulfed or engaged in life or fully uh, experiencing, and for whatever reason, the mind doesn't let you do it, all of a sudden you can. And, oh, wow, this is what it means to just inhabit my life in a simple and enjoyable way. So that's something I would probably consider working on for almost anyone if they're feeling contraction. I've met people who have pretty clear non-dual realization, like they don't experience boundaries and they still contract and they still have reactivity. It's very easy to overlook this because it's not an enjoyable thing to investigate. It's kind of like looking in the last place you'd look, but if you're willing to just look there and it can take a little while, it's like flexing a muscle, you know, you won't want to, your mind will want to do everything but this. But if you just go there and you go, okay, I feel, I feel it like right here in my gut, like on the left side, there's a little bit of a contraction and it's just saying, no, 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 no. And what I found is that the energy signature in the body, that contracted area, it's kind of been classically conditioned or maybe operantly conditioned with your interpretation. So the body sort of stores it. The body sensations store that, that sense of saying no to life, but you don't notice it because the attention wants to go to the mind. It wants to distract. It wants to go into the future, the past. It wants to rationalize. So you're overlooking it all the time. So when you reverse that tendency and you start to actually go into the contracted area and just feel that nervous restlessness, kind of like helplessness is what it is when you realize I can't actually control reality. And I can't control that I'm like, I can't make myself be a good person all the time. I am what I am. And sometimes if the cognitive dissonance comes where I want to be a good person, but I didn't act like the best person, I don't have to avoid that. I can actually go down and find its root. What makes that uncomfortable for me? And that's the kind of work I would, I would recommend. Yeah, that's great. What you just said, I hope people really picked up on that, just that any kind of impatience or frustration or anything else, there's some kind of contraction stored in the body that's causing you to react that way rather than externalize and feel resentful about the grocery store line or the traffic or something like that. If we internalize and locate 
that stored contraction, which is causing us to be frustrated externally, then it can be resolved right there, but it can never be resolved externally. That's right. Absolutely. We externalize our sense of, say, agency or doership in an imaginary way. Like I can imagine that into not having happened, but it already happened. And when we do that, what we're overlooking is this subtle sense of helplessness. Like I'm helpless to the situation. Like this situation is just what it is. Helplessness is an interesting thing because to the egoic mind, to the, the sense of agency, it's the last thing it wants to experience. But to natural reality, in a sense, everything is sort of helpless. Everything is sort of innocent and helpless. Animals are helpless. We're helpless. And the Buddhist tenant that, you know, we're all of the nature to grow old, be diseased and die. You know, it sounds quote unquote negative, but it's also a very important thing to recognize and realize and integrate into your life that life is fragile. When you're able to operate from that helplessness or at least acknowledge it in yourself, that's when you really start to feel love for others. Like you, you can see their helplessness and their fragility and the fragility of literally everything. You can approach life with a much, much more gentleness. Yeah. yeah. I think the patience point is really important too. On the spiritual path, patience is really important. And in general, if you're impatient, then you're definitely ignoring what we were talking about earlier in terms of nature having a governing intelligence and mm -hmm. uh, all is well and wisely put. If you're in a traffic jam or you're in a grocery store line, I mean, maybe you can decide to commute at a different hour or shop at a different hour or something. But if you're in that situation now, that's the situation you're in and you don't have any control over it. You got to recognize that, okay, well, this is the way the divine play is orchestrated at the moment. This is the part I'm playing in it, you know, sitting in this car. And so let's listen to the radio or, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. or just marinate in being for a little while uh, until Absolutely. the traffic moves. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. I think also in terms of spirituality, I, I myself have at times in my life had an enlightenment or bust attitude as, as you did when you were a teenager and can be useful, but there's a strain element, which mm -hmm. I think is counterproductive. Yep. Again, another paradox is my book's called Awake. I talk about awakening and then I have a retreat and people start asking questions. Okay, well, I haven't had my awakening yet. And I say, don't worry about that. Don't think about an awakening as a, a future event because there's no future that's going to happen in. Whatever it is, it's already here. You may or may not shift the lens or the lens will shift, but even that you probably can't directly control. You can till the soil and fertilize the soil, but what you can do is learn to enjoy the moment. You can learn to enjoy the presence and, and being alive, of course. And then serendipity, usually that's when it strikes or often when it strikes. When I was in my enlightenment or bust phase, Marishi Mahesh Yogi once said to me, every day is life. Don't pass over the present for some glorious future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a question came in from Gloria. Gloria is curious to, if you have any thoughts on God, death, and reincarnation. So generally, these kinds of questions, I often tell people, I don't want to rob you of your own discovery of it in your way. But since you asked specifically, I'll tell you, with God specifically, I would say that's something to investigate yourself for sure. It's like really investigate what is God to you? God certainly can be a concept. It can be an idea, some things you've learned about, and that's fine. But there's probably a more intimate experience of God for you, I would imagine. So feel into that. Really feel into that. Can you find where you end and it starts? Come in contact with that direct experience of God as close as you can get, as unguarded as you can get, as surrendered as you can get, which will be beyond thoughts, hopefully, beyond concepts of God. And I would say, find the answer there. The koan could be, what is God? 
that could be it. It'd be a wonderful con. So I, I would say investigate in that way to the degree it feels relevant to you. Death is an interesting one. There are certain things that I know can be triggering for people. So I'm, I'm careful how I talk about them and when I talk about them. One is no self, but interestingly, no self is starting to become more accepted. It seems like in pop culture, it's less of a triggering thing than it used to be. It seems like maybe because science is starting to kind of point to that as well. And these sorts of things, doership is another one, agency and free will and choice. Those can be really triggering depending on how you talk about them. So I'm a little careful. Death is another one, of course. What I would say about death is my experience. I'll be really direct. My experience of death is it's here all the time. True death is here all the time. This moment is never coming back. It's gone. It's so precious. It's so fleeting. These conditions will never be here again. And so it's it's like a living death. It's like being a uh, walking dead person or something in, in one way of speaking. I have a friend who said, I feel like an infant, like a newborn baby and a dead person at the same time. And that's how it is for me all the time. That's what she told me. So I have a reverence for death, but I also can't decouple death from birth. One way of saying solving the problem of birth and death is seeing very clearly through experience that they're not two things. They aren't separate in any way. But in a personal way, for anyone who's listening or curious about it, I would say investigate it. Look into it. Look at your fears. Of, look into your fears of death. It worked really well for Ramana Maharishi, right? When he was 15 years old, he laid down and died because he had just lost his father, which is a very intense emotional thing to go through. And he literally went down and went through the death process himself. Now, most of us probably can't just do that, but you can investigate, like, what would it actually be like to not be here? Or what would my face look like before my parents were born? Or what continues on if this body drops dead right now? You know, these things can be really good entry points if they spark an interest in you. Everyone's different. Some people, this is not a tasteful thing to talk about. But if it is, I would say definitely investigate. Uh, What was the third thing? Reincarnation. Reincarnation. Another one I avoid talking about for a different reason, not because it's triggering, but because it really can give someone a cookie to chase. Like, oh, I really want to experience my past lives and stuff. All I can tell you is when this second big part of this shift happened that I described earlier in this interview, it was very clear that there had been multiple lives going through this process. It wasn't a memory of like who I was. This experience of realization had clarified more and more over several successive lifetimes. And this was, in a sense, still is. It is in the energetic experience. It's not in the conscious experience. It's not in consciousness, like a visual thing or an imagination. And I've never even said that to anybody until someone told me they had it. And I said, oh, okay. Because I was not that I was embarrassed, but it could be so easily misinterpreted. And I can also say that I can't even guarantee those are past lives because from that place, time doesn't exist. So they could almost be like parallel lives or something. I don't really know, but that was very obvious. So energetically, I have experienced that. So I I know it's in some semblance of energetically true with the, the contemplations and inquiries I talk about. It's nothing to focus on necessarily because you're more likely than not to either confuse yourself or be chasing the wrong thing. It's like chasing Sidhis or chasing magical powers or something like that. It can just be too much of a distraction. And I say, clarify the the insight, clarify realization. And then from there, you might be really surprised how you see these things. They might become exquisitely clear suddenly for you. One thing I found helpful and not distracting is reading some books and interviewing people about near-death experiences. Just because it thins the veil, you know, between the physicality of this life and what may come beyond it or after it. And, you know, it doesn't 
it doesn't incline me to want to figure out what my past lives were or to have a near death experience myself or anything, but it's just interesting to hear what, what people go through and the insights they feel they gain very often when they are on the other side, so to speak briefly. Um, And just the broader perspective that they have and then how that changes their life when they survive and come back. And it's like Mm. a big shift. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just restate that. And you make a really good point. When I said that, I I don't necessarily mean that there's no value to that because I I don't believe that. But with the awakening process itself, it's something I think maybe parallel to that. Like if you're interested in, in, in those sorts of things, that's fine. Explore it. Just don't mix it up. If you mix the two up, it can just get confusing. I think that's my best advice. What do you mean don't mix it up? If you're trying to wake up and trying to clarify your insights by trying to do astral projection or something. Oh, yeah. Like no, I'm not yeah. suggesting that. Or, or something like that. I would say they're, they're parallel interests, sort of like science and awakening. If you want to understand consciousness by understanding the default mode network and all those things, that's great. But don't mix that up with awakening because you, you can know everything there is to know about brain neurophysiology and not wake up. So just know that there's a, a different possibility here that is really apart from any other kind of learnings that have to do with understanding in the in the human realm, I guess is sure. what I would say to that. And I don't think you're saying that it presents a conflict if you want to study the default mode network and do spiritual practice. You're just saying don't jump to the conclusion that the intellectual study is going to be adequate for the, the experiential realization. Yeah, that's exactly the way I would say it. And I also sure. am fascinated with the past life things. Have you seen or interviewed people who talk about children who remember their past lives in such clarity that it's like irrefutable, essentially. Yeah. Jim Tucker. I, I yeah. interviewed Jim. He's the successor to Ian Stevenson and they uh-huh. studied all these thousands of children basically who have experiences like that. So there's a categorical index on that gap under the past interviews menu where you can, there's a category for this kind of thing and various categories. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Well, we've reached that point in the interview at which the dogs are starting to wrestle on the floor because they're getting frustrated with me. Um, So anyway, this has been great, Angelo. I really have enjoyed talking to you and getting to know you. Yeah, yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much for your time and taking so much time to unpack all of this. And I hope people get a lot out of it. Yeah. And uh, when is your next book going to be done, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. You don't know. Okay. A couple uh, years probably, I don't let know. Let me know when it is. You know, oh, maybe, for sure. Maybe we can do a follow-up. You have a bunch of YouTube videos, which people can watch. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else? Do you have like webinars or anything like that? So my YouTube channel is Simply Always Awake, if you want to check that out. I also have a free meditation app of guided meditations I made with music I composed. It's called Simply Awake, and it's free on iPhone and Android. So. I should make sure to mention that on your Batcat page. I have already created a link to your YouTube channel, but remind me uh, by email later on what you want me to put as a way of people accessing that app. Okay. Okay, good. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for um, sticking with us. As I just alluded to, there will be a page for this interview on BatGap where you can go to, and then from there you can bounce to uh, Angelo's YouTube channel and links to his books and things like that. And next week I'll be doing a, um, a second interview with a very sweet gentleman named Sebastian Blakesley who lives in uh, Rio de Janeiro. If you want to watch my first interview with him before next week, you'll be all primed for listening to that interview. So talk to you later. Thanks, Angelo. Thank you.